Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Megan Grant, welcome to the Osha Protect podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me again. It's a pleasure to be back on and talking with you. Yeah, and you're, this is obviously the second time you've been on the show, and, and that actually finds you in rare company. You're actually only the third person in the, the podcast history to uh, come back for the second time. Ooh. Yeah, Tim Silverwood and uh, Laura Wells are the only other guests that we've had on twice. So you've obviously got some talent. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, clearly the you know the listeners liked the stories of uh, Pooh Girl from last uh, session. So back again. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, and obviously, it's like a parent. You shouldn't have your favourites as a as a podcaster, but I, I think your podcast chat, you and uh, Lillian uh, Stewart, hands down, has been my favourite of all time. So I'd certainly encourage listeners if they haven't listened already, stop whatever you're doing and listen to last uh, season's chat with Lillian and Megan Grant, aka Vomit Lady and Guano Girl. It was so. Uh, That's the one, yeah. Hopefully I can live up to your expectations this time around. Oh, look, no doubt, no doubt. Are you still in Launceston? Yes, still in Launceston. So still doing my PhD and I have, gosh, about a year and a half, two years to go thereabouts. I'm not really keeping track. I probably should be, but... um, Oh, it's, it's too scary if I think about it that way. So I know. It is such an all-encompassing sort of task, isn't it, taking on a PhD because there's a sort of nominal period or scholarship period of, say, three years. But, you know, who's to say how long it will take? And generally they take longer, don't they, let's face it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I know people who are in their seventh, eighth, ninth year of their oh, PhD, which doesn't give yeah. me much hope. But as you were saying, there's this scholarship. Luckily, they've extended it out to three and a half years. That gives us a little bit more time. But still, I mean, the pressure's on. And look, it has to be said, you're probably charging ahead. Like uh, if you're using sort of, I guess, milestones and timelines, you've actually just finished, from what I understand, your first thesis chapter and actually have a published paper already. So surely that's sort of, you know, you're sort of on track, aren't you really? Yeah, 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 definitely on track at this point. And yes, you're right. So I've got my first thesis chapter all finished and done and dusted, which is super exciting. And it's being published as well. 
Yeah, and look, we'll, we'll dive into the uh, detail of this paper because I I have read it in detail, and I'll include a, a link to the uh, to the paper in the show notes. But it's called "Seabird Breeding Islands as Sinks for Marine Plastic Debris," and it has been published. It was published in the Journal of Environmental Pollution, but I'll include a, again a link to the show notes. But I realised I was actually listening into um, last year's episode with you guys, and I I realised we actually didn't get your backstory. So oh. normally we sort of ask, you know, oh, how did you get involved with sort of, you know, your current line of work? You managed to somehow skip the question. I don't know how. So well, I'm, I'm keen to know. So obviously you're, you're currently a PhD candidate at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. And I guess as part of that, you're all part of uh, or a researcher is with Adrift Lab, which we've had many guests uh, from Adrift Lab now on our uh, podcast. But how did this interest in you know, ocean plastic pollution or seabirds, how did this sort of come about in the first place? For as long as I can remember, I've always been interested in the great outdoors and nature and wildlife and, you know, every, everything to do with, with that. I grew up in a small town right on the beach and I'd always be down at the beach walking my dog or swimming or, you know, just going for walks and mum would always have to stop and wait for me because I had, I'd have like my head basically buried in the sand <laughs> looking at shells or little crabs or, I don't know, whatever I found washed up on the beach. All growing up through my you know, primary years and again at high school, I was really involved with outdoor education and all that kind of thing and like environmental science. Then in grade 12, on one of the outdoor education camps, we did this walk on Bruni Island, which is down sort of just south of Hobart in Tasmania mm-hmm. or off, Tas- off Tasmania's coast. And along this walk, there was no people, you know, super remote. And I remember we got to this one beach and it was just strewn with uh debris of all types and this plastic didn't come from people walking along the beach it came from came from the ocean and I remember we we cleaned up the beach and it was you know really rewarding but I wanted to know more I wanted to know why it had washed up on this beach or where had it really come from and after that I then did my Bachelor of Applied Science in the Marine Environment. But strangely enough, I focused on fisheries, so uh, like wild catch fisheries and how to manage those sustainably. But when I got to the end of that three-year degree, I kind of sort of realised like, oh, I don't know if fisheries is really for me. I, like, I understand it's really important, especially in today's society, but it's not something I'm as interested as I originally thought I was. So I started doing some digging around, trying to find out who at uh, my university, University of Tasmania, were focusing on plastics or seabirds because I had this love of seabirds from earlier in my degree where we'd go out on fishing vessels and the seabirds would follow along behind the fishing vessels and I fell in love with the seabirds rather than the fishing. And I remember I found this this one person who happened to be uh, Jennifer Lavers and I was told that she was like the plastics queen up at Launceston and I just had to get in contact with her. So I sent her an email and I was like, oh, hi, Jennifer. I'm just, I'm looking at honours projects and I was just wondering if you had something available in either plastic pollution or seabirds or both. I was super nervous though because like I'd heard she was like super popular and she knew so much about (laughs) What she did, and I, yeah, I was super worried. But she sent me back this email. She's like, "Come and have a chat, and let's just let's just see how things go." So I, I walk up to her office, and 
she tells me that she's just had a permit approved to go out to this super remote island off the coast of Western Australia. She's like, I've got this project looking at seabirds and plastics. Don't know if you want to come. And I was like, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Um, but by that stage, I hadn't even decided whether I really wanted to do an honours project yet. But she was like, look, I'll give you a couple of days to decide, but we're going out in two weeks. You kind of have to like decide pretty quickly. I'm sorry, but you know, yeah. you know, and I was like, sure, I'll come out. And yeah, two weeks later, I was out on this tiny little remote island with Jen looking at seabirds and how they use plastics within their nests. And it's just grown from there, I suppose. Wow. Wow. So that uh, little girl wandering along the beach, I'm guessing in Tasmania, in a remote yes, part yes, of Tasmania. Yes, I'm, yeah, Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah, so, and obviously looking at the plastic on the beach, wondering where it's come from. And literally your PhD is essentially doing that. You're sort of looking at plastic on Lord Howe Island and actually using a whole bunch of very robust scientific methods actually determining exactly where it's coming from. Exactly, yeah. So my PhD, that's the paper that's just been published, is yeah one of my thesis chapters and I've looked at how plastics have been transported to Lord Howe Island and deposited on, on, on the island by uh, the flesh-footed shearwaters that inhabit the island. And I'm also looking at how this is where the, the guano girl part comes into it. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm looking at uh, how their guano influences the island. So we know that guano contains lots of nutrients, lots of beneficial nutrients that they obtain from their prey. And then when they come back to the island, they obviously do a poo or multiple and they <laughs> deposit their nutrients via their guano. And then these nutrients become, you know, absorbed into the soil mm, and then mm. it has a whole range of uh, beneficial impacts from that. But also yeah. possibly uh, negative impacts, and that's what I'm looking at as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think last time we spoke, you were sort of like, I'm guessing probably six months into your PhD. So you you were sort of, uh, I guess, in the very early stages, but obviously, uh, I guess a year or so down the track, you've done more work and, yeah, obviously published this paper, which uh, was certainly, I'm, I'm, I honestly, like I, I, I'd heard about this paper, I'd read sort of the a summary of it, but when I sort of delved into the detail, the, the numbers and the methods and what, honestly, it was quite shocking and I was, it's almost like one of those things that sort of knocks the wind out of you every time you sort of read more statistics around this issue in your paper. So, look, it's, it's a, for, for a, PhD first thesis chapter or first paper on this topic. It's pretty impressive, but uh, I'm 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 keen to get into the detail of it. Actually, but before we do, you mentioned your interest in fisheries, and actually, just I think literally today, I'm not sure if you still sort of uh, have an interest in the fisheries, but I, I think just just today, I'm not sure if you've heard of the documentary Sea Spiracy. No, I haven't. Oh, really? Wow, man, this has actually gone live on Netflix. Tonight in Australia. So this is a documentary around the fishing industry, essentially what looking at, I, I believe, I'm, I'm yet to actually watch it myself because it literally launched tonight, but I think it's about the fishing industry, uh, specifically around wild-caught fish uh, globally. I think Kip Anderson is involved, who was one of the directors involved in Cowspiracy, which is a, a very uh, good documentary if you, uh, that is also available on Netflix. But certainly uh, for our listeners, I certainly encourage everyone to tune into that because it looks fascinating. And the reason I sort of uh, probably a little bit interested in fisheries at the moment, I'm reading a book called Outlaw Ocean by Ian Urbaner, 
and my lord. It's about essentially the the fishing industry and sort of I guess sort of the practices at sea and it's kind of like the wild west uh in relation to you know fishing practices it's basically a slave trade on the ocean it's horrendous uh working conditions and i think something like 20 percent of all fish caught uh, are illegally caught which means there's a whole bunch of very dodgy practices associated with that in terms of you know essentially trafficking humans uh, as slaves etc um so fascinating uh so uh certainly there's a lot of interesting research still, still to be done on fisheries but i can imagine i i reckon plastic pollution's uh certainly a cooler topic to do as part of a um a research uh phd as opposed to looking at fisheries in in, in too great a detail but uh that's another story well i yeah. mean I I don't come home smelling like fish um, at the end of the day, so <laughs> I guess that's a benefit to working with plastics. Though occasionally I come home smelling like seabirds. So, well, I was going to say you, you probably smell of poo, wouldn't you? Really, like aren't you literally sampling and analysing seabird poo? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> the island that I was talking about, the one that I went to with Jen. Mm. I ended up going there a second time the following year and I went out with some people from the Department of Parks and Wildlife over in Western Australia. And I remember we got onto the island and because it's, you know, uh, off the coast of Port Hedland, it's super hot, so like 40 degrees, really humid. Mm. And I remember we arrived on the island and one of the other people I was with, she's like, oh, it stinks like bird crap here. (laughs) And it's super strong. But I was just like, I sort of took this big lung full in and I was like, ah, no, it's it's so familiar. It's almost like home, (laughs) which (laughs) sounds probably disgusting, but um, I don't know. I'm just kind of used to the smell, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, I reckon reckon it's time to delve into this research that you've done. So I've read it in detail, but obviously uh, our listeners almost certainly haven't. I guess to give it some context, can you tell us about your study area, i.e. Lord Howe Island, and you can give us a sort of an idea of what these flesh-footed shearwaters are, are like that actually call the island home? Yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't know, Lord Howe Island is located about 500 kilometres off the coast of uh, New South Wales, so sort of smack bang in between New South Wales and New Zealand, and it is this Beautiful, remote, sort of tropical paradise, I suppose. It's home to the world's southernmost coral reef and there are a huge number of endemic species on the island as well. There are some permanent residents there, not very many. I think it's only a couple of hundred. The shearwaters, the flesh-footed shearwaters that call it home, there's the, uh, the world's largest colony is on the island and they're sort of split up across five or six sort of separate colonies on the island and all of the colonies are situated within these uh, kentia palm sort of forests. So these these forests are yeah, dominated by kentia palms and other small palm species and the shearwaters, they burrow quite long burrows, so sort of two to three mm-hmm. metres down into the into the soil and that is where they lay their eggs and that's where they have their chicks. And these birds, they come to the island in it's about September, October. That's when they start breeding. And then they'll be on the island until about mid-May. And that's when they leave and then migrate up to the Sea of Japan. And these birds, they are well known to ingest significant quantities of plastics. And that is what Jennifer has been studying over the last Oh gosh, I lose track of how many years, 14 years, 15 years wow. um, now. 
it's, it's, yeah, it's been incredible. And, you know, there's been birds that she's found that have had upwards of 200 pieces of plastics within their stomachs. And these birds that, um, that she looks at are the chicks. So they're often less than 90 days old and they've been mm. fed entirely by their parent birds. Yeah, and then they just have huge amounts of plastics in them. So often the ones that we end up looking at have, you know, washed up on the beaches because they've been, you know, so unwell and they've been so, they, 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 you know, they don't have the nutrition or the, or the mm. fat stores to get them off the island basically. Because these are like birds, whilst they're, to be honest, they're cute looking birds. They're sort of, oh, they're adorable. Yeah, like they're, like, yeah, they're very, but they're obviously like elite athletes. Like they're, they're obviously having to, you know, fly enormous distances at great peril. And obviously they need to be in tip top condition. And I guess having sort of something in your stomach that really doesn't belong there, such as plastic, uh, that obviously takes up the ability of your stomach to absorb um, other food and nutrients, but also is, uh, potentially causing damage to your stomach as well just by the nature of the plastic itself. It's obviously these birds probably live on a knife edge really in terms of, you know, just living their day-to-day life in the absence of sort of, I guess, human intervention. But obviously when they've got this sort of handicap of plastic ingestion, it obviously really impacts them significantly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Have you got a feel for what proportion of these birds actually do have plastic in their bellies and how it actually affects their sort of lives? I don't think we know exactly sort of what proportion of the wild population um, ingest plastics. But of the birds that we uh, look at every year that we go out, so we go out annually um, at the end of April, those birds often, you know, upwards of 90% of them have plastics in them. So, you know, if we were to sort of like extrapolate this out to the entire population, yeah, really doesn't look good for them, Mm, I suppose. mm. And let's talk about this research. So what, what exactly was your research? What was this, I guess, the key research question that you're actually trying to answer? So we wanted to know uh, just how many pieces of plastics the birds were transporting to the island and depositing within their colonies. And the birds deposit the plastics through a number of ways. So we were looking at uh, boluses. So they're those like little pellets that the birds can regurgitate, which we covered in the chat with Lillian earlier. Um, And they can also uh, deposit them when they regurgitate their meals to like their chicks. So there might be some Mm -hmm. spillage along the way. 
Mm. Uh, and then the other way is if the bird has been really unwell, then it may die. And then when it decomposes, it leaves behind all of the plastics within its stomach. That was actually how this sort of project began or, uh, many years ago. Uh, I think yeah. in 2003, our long-term collaborator on the island, uh, Dr. Ian Hutton, he was walking through the through one of the colonies and he found a shearwater carcass and its rib cage was full of plastics. He took a photo of it and it's included in my paper, so you have to check yeah, it out. Yeah, I'm but looking at it now. I'll include it in there. It's incredible. It's incredible footage. Like, and I think I've seen sort of similar footage or photos potentially, I guess, I'm guessing from Jennifer Labors. And I'm, I remember some footage that I think I've seen in, in a couple of her sort of, in a couple of the documentaries that she's featured. It's, it's just uh, incredible to see this, this little bird, you know, it's really sort of small skeleton with just this humongous amount of plastic in its belly. And it's obviously, that plastic is obviously seemed to contribute to its death, if not was the primary overwhelming cause of its death. So, yes, there's some shocking footage, but I guess the, the, the question that you were sort of trying to answer is how, how much of this plastic is is being deposited on the island from these seabirds. And am I saying up until probably the last few years, this isn't a, a topic that hasn't really been researched at all? Like obviously people have been aware of, you know, the uh, guano deposits, so and that's obviously a, a essentially farmed or, or sort of uh, collected in, in various parts of the world. I remember going to off the coast of Peru one time, I can't remember the name, Ballesteas Islands, I think, by memory, and they the, there were some guys there sweeping guano off the rocks uh, into bags and they use it as fertiliser, which is a pretty hard job, I can imagine. But so, yeah, obviously people are aware of the nutrient deposition rates, I guess, of guano, from seabirds, but am I right in saying no one's really looked at up until the last few years the plastic deposition rates uh, from seabirds on on land? Yeah, yeah, you are. You're exactly right. So people have been, you know, well aware of the the beneficial impacts of guano for as a fertilizer. And many years ago, I can't remember the exact year, but guano was valued more highly than gold. Yeah, so to give it a, a bit of perspective. Even though we've been looking at the ingestion of plastics by seabirds for a number of years now, uh, I think the, the first paper that recorded it was in 1969, I believe. Mm. Um, so we, we've known about it for, you know, 50 years or so. Mm. But it's only been within the last six or seven years that we've been very slowly looking at the plastics that are deposited by the seabirds on land. So there was a paper in 2013 and that was on oh, in a couple of colonies in New Zealand and they found an average of 0.0013 pieces per square metre, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, not not all, all too much, I suppose. Uh, no. There's been another study which they only found a single piece of plastic and then in the last sort of six months, there's been two or three papers that have looked at microplastics in mm. guano. They report some absolutely staggering amounts of plastics, like in in the millions that um, you know that seabirds can transport via their guano. Uh, that's something that I haven't looked at specifically in this paper. I've only looked at the macroplastics. When you say macroplastics, you mean anything bigger than five millimeters? Yes, exactly. Bigger than yeah. five mil. Yeah. Yeah, so microplastics by definition are anything smaller than five millimetres. So, yeah, your focus was, I guess, quantifying the amount of macroplastics being deposited 
on Lord Howe Island from these flesh-footed uh, shearwaters. So I guess let's let's dive into the method. So I've read you, you set up these quadrants. Can you explain? And obviously you've analysed them year in year out. Can you explain these the setup and the, the quadrants and the and the frequencies of analysis? Yeah, sure. So about five years ago, we set up five 10 by 10 metre quadrats within one of the colonies on the island. And these quadrats, we marked them with, we put little bits of tape on the corners of the quadrat, like on the the palm trees. So we knew exactly where they were so that every year we could go out and record the plastics within these quadrats in the exact same places. For the first two years, what we did was we thoroughly removed all plastics from within these areas and there was basically just like the cleaning year. Mm. So we didn't actually record the amount of plastics from those years. That was just cleaning the surface, starting afresh basically, mm. so that in the following year, the amount of plastics that we found within that quadrat was the amount of plastics that had been deposited over 12-month period. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, the annual amount of deposition. Yeah. For three years, we recorded the amount of plastics from those five quadrats. First of all, we would remove all of the the leaf litter or the big sort of palm fronds from the quadrat so that we could easily see the sandy substrate underneath. Mm. And then in a team of, depending on how many people we had, four to five people, we would sweep the quadrat from one side to the other and then turn in 90 degrees and then sweep again just so that we were sure that we got every single piece of plastic. That must look really weird, you know, these people all lined up in a row, you know, sorting bit by bit, grain by sand, yeah. grain, you know, just there's one, there's another one, <laughs> there's one. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised as well because, you know, you think you'd get them all and then you, yeah. you go for that second sweep and you're like, oh, hang on, there's another piece and another yeah. piece. We did the two sweeps just to be sure that we got mm. every single piece of plastic, but it probably looks like we were, you know, in a crime scene or something <laughs> looking for evidence. But <laughs> so we've actually got a fair bit of data. So you got you got five of these ten meter by ten meter quadrants uh, across a, a you know a, a section of the colony area for these uh, shearwaters, and I'm and I remember reading that the colony area is completely isolated from the settlement area of Lord Howe Island. So it's definitely no one. You know, coming along and littering, it's definitely brought there by the seabirds. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the colony is located high above the sea. So there's no possibility for plastics to be blown in or washed in from the ocean. And additionally, it's located far away from the settlement. So the plastics couldn't have come from, you know, people walking through the colony. And in addition, the plastics that we found were very typical of plastics that have been ingested by the shearwaters. Mm. So they are small, uh, often with like rounded edges and weathered sides. And in oh, it was like 99.8% of all the pieces were hard plastic fragments. So those that have come from the breakdown of larger items like bottle cups, buckets, pen lids, pieces of Lego, all, all of that kind of thing. So we, we, and that's really typical of ocean plastics mm, as well. Mm, so, mm. and then that's what we find as well in the sheer waters, which are often, you know, in most cases, those hard plastic fragments. Okay. So let's see, you got a fair bit of data. You've got this isolated colony, these sections, these scientists have been scanning, trying to pick up little bits of plastic every year for three years. What's the results show? 
All right, so our results. So yeah, over the three years of sampling between 2018 and 2020, we found a total of 3,265 pieces of plastic uh, and this weighed about 780 grams. The mean density of plastics that we found was 2.18 pieces and that got to a maximum of 3.66 pieces. That's per square metre, yeah. That's per square metre. Yeah. Um, and if we, we go back a few steps, I was saying earlier that a previous study found uh, a mean of 0.0013 pieces for every square metre. And mine is, what, 2.18 pieces. So that's 168 times as many pieces of plastic, which is uh, staggering. pretty crazy. That's staggering because this is the Lord Howe. It's, it's a UNESCO site, middle of nowhere, pristine, ideal location, yet for every square metre of these sea colony areas and their large sea colony areas with I think something like 22,000 birds on the island uh, every year, you're getting about two pieces of plastic for every square metre. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, like you'd be walking through the colony and you can look down as you walk and you can easily just pick up pieces of plastic from the surface. You'll find them all the time. It's absolutely littered. I wouldn't have even thought you'd get that many in a, like a CBD environment. Like, you know, I'm quite close to the Brisbane CBD. If I saw more than two pieces of plastic for every square metre, I'd be like, who are these litter bugs, <laughs> really? But this is on a you know hilltop in Lord Howe Island in, a, in the middle of a seabird colony. It's ridiculous. It's scary. It, 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 yeah, it really is. And to think that just one single species of seabird yeah. are bringing these plastics to the island, like, None of the other species are, or no, none that we've looked at at least anyway. Uh, I mean, and the, and the colonies that we're looking at are single-species colonies mm. anyway, so it can only be the flesh-footed shearwaters that are bringing these plastics. So, yeah, it's just wild. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. The episodes are released weekly, and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.